every year or two, usually Easter, claims are made in the media questioning the facts concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Around Easter 2000, you may recall, sensational headlines announced the lost tomb of Jesus and asked, have the bones of Jesus Christ been discovered in a tomb in Jerusalem? A documentary for the Discovery Channel produced by James Cameron, he of Titanic film fame, focused on a tomb uncovered in Jerusalem. It contained 10 ossuaries. You don't know what an ossuary is? An ossuary is a limestone box in which the bones of people who have died are interred. And there were 10 boxes in this tomb, and they all had names on them. And among the names were Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Mariamne, Matthew, and others. And claims were made that the Jesus in question was none other than the Jesus of the New Testament. And suggestions were made, based, it was said, on DNA evidence, that he was married to the Mariamne, who was no other than Mary Magdalene, who features in the Gospels. Interviewing James Cameron on the American TV program today, the host Meredith Vieira commented, if this is correct, what are the implications? They're huge. Well, that's what you call an understatement. <laughs> huge indeed. If this is correct, if Christ did not actually rise from the dead. However, such claims are nothing new. In one of the first books to be written in the New Testament part of our Bible, in a letter sent just over 20 years after the events surrounding the death and supposed resurrection of Jesus, we discover that in a church in the Greek city of Corinth, people were already discussing whether Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so in this letter, Paul, the man through whose preaching this church came into existence, wrote to them to affirm the facts and to think through the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what I'd simply like to try and uh, do with you this morning for a few minutes. Now, his arguments in this letter are long and very detailed. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to go home and read the whole chapter in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one. Uh, and I'll sort it out with the deacons later or the finance uh, people, but that's what Bibles are for. Uh, but let's look at the central section, one of the sections in which he asks, as it were, uh, the question, what if, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What, what does that mean? So if you've got a Bible, turn in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews, just... Pick one up or ask someone to pass you one. And you'll find it on page 1155. 1155 in the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read just verses 12 to 19, but I'll refer to some of the rest later on. But notice carefully the, the argument. What if? What if Christ isn't raised from the dead? But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is God's word. Now the specific issue for these Christians in Corinth was they were questioning the resurrection of Christians. That they weren't going to be raised when they died or, or fell asleep as Christians describe death. But Paul is challenging them to think through the disastrous consequences if this is true. Verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen then there are huge implications for Christians in first century Corinth and huge implications for the millions, indeed billions of people down the ages and even today who all over the world are standing up and affirming the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed. <coughs> Let me summarize what he says here because he makes three main points about what if. What if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Firstly, he says... If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is powerless. Now, Paul himself was a preacher. He called himself an apostle, which is just a word meaning someone sent with, a, with an important message. In this case, he said his message came from God and his message centered on Jesus Christ. And he said he'd been commissioned by God to, to preach this message. The word he uses for preaching here is the word used of a herald in the ancient world. I guess a modern, well, it's not a modern equivalent, a more recent equivalent is a town crier who goes around ringing the bell and saying, oh, yay, oh, yay, this is what's happening or has happened. Paul says, I was commissioned to go and tell people about Jesus, that he died and risen again. That's what brought him to Corinth in the first place on one of his journeys as he went from place to place telling people Christ is risen. But he says, if this is true, if it's not true, if Christ is not risen, then the gospel message is bad news. The message about Jesus he called gospel, which means news or good news. He says it's bad news, for he says, our preaching is useless. Now when he says our preaching is useless, he doesn't mean he was a useless preacher. What it means is the word useless there is a, is a Greek word... It, Translation of a Greek word that means empty. It means it has no content. You can be a brilliant preacher, but your message can be useless because it's got no content. It's not real. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Michael Ramsey, puts it like this. The gospel without the resurrection is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It's not a gospel at all. 
And more than that, Paul says, if this is not true, if Christ is not raised, then not only is our message empty and useless, but we, the gospel messengers, we're, we're false witnesses. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified, we've affirmed, as it were under oath, that God raised Christ from the dead. The word found means to be caught out or detected, as with a crime. Like someone selling a product under a false label. And we get a lot of this today, don't we? I was looking in, in the news recently, and six Britons were arrested in Spain for selling bogus, bogus timeshare deals. If you've ever been to Spain, you get collared by these people, don't you, in the street, and they say, you want to get a timeshare? And people paid thousands of pounds to get a timeshare property in Spain, only to discover there was no land and no property. And Paul says, if we've gone around telling people that Christ is risen from the dead, and, and it's not true, we're bogus salesmen. And this has serious consequences then, not only for the preachers who were, who were peddling this message, but those who bought into it, who believe what he said. For notice he says, secondly, if Christ has not been raised, secondly, our faith is futile. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. The word futile means fruitless. Your faith has no effect. So if Christ has not been raised, then the Christian has no foundation for faith. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on 1 Corinthians, uh, David Pryor puts it in very stark terms. He says, take out the resurrection of Jesus and there is nothing left on which to rest faith, only the decomposing corpse of an itinerant carpenter turned rabbi. So with no foundation for faith, no lasting, real, reliable foundation for faith, there is, says Paul, no forgiveness for sins. See, the Christian claims that Jesus, God's son, came to earth in human form, lived a perfect life, and offered himself in our place, having no sin of his own, having never done anything wrong, tempted in every way as we are, yet without giving in to temptation, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to God for sin, so that we might be forgiven. We sing about it at Easter in those old hymns. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, so that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. Now, says Paul, if Christ has not been raised, then his mission failed. Great hero, but there's no forgiveness for sins. Those who've trusted in Christ then are trusting in something false. They are not forgiven. They're still estranged from God. Uh, David Pratt comments again. If Jesus stayed dead, there are only two conclusions. Either he was not the sinless person everyone thought him to be, and his death marked his final separation from God, like everyone else, or he might have been without personal sin, but his attempt to atone for the sin of the world by his death did not meet with divine approval. And then he concludes, either way, we are still in our sins, cut off from God, facing his judgment like everyone else. And that, of course, leads to the third conclusion in these verses in 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, our prospects are pitiful. If Christ has not been raised, there are serious consequences 
as we've seen, for those who are still alive, these Corinthians, they're still in their sins. But there are even more serious consequences for those who have died. For those who have died then are lost. Look what he says in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. He uses this image of sleep to describe death for Christians. And what he says is, when you take that final sleep of death, you're never going to wake up again. That's it. Many people believe that. The sleepers will never wake up. And this is truly a, a living nightmare scenario. For it means that those left behind who yet have yet to die, those who are alive are the most miserable of all people. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Some years ago, a well-known Christian related a conversation he had with a taxi driver. It went something like this. The taxi driver said, I know you're always blethering on in the media about you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Uh, what if you die and you discover you're wrong about this Christianity business? And he replied, he said, well, if that happened, I'd still have had a wonderful life. But what about you? You've missed out even on that. Now, I understand the point I think he's trying to make. Not least in a society like ours where the cost of following Christ is not very high. But imagine that you're suffering for Christ and you've lost relatives who've been martyred for Christ on the basis they believe that Christ was risen from the dead. And you turn out it's all a big illusion. You've just wasted your life on something useless. Paul's argument is very different. Later on in the chapter, he describes his own life as one of suffering and danger. And he says... It's a complete waste of time if it's based on a lie. Verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why bother coming to Charlotte Chapel on Easter Sunday morning? It's a lovely day, you could be out there in the sunshine, sunbathing, enjoying yourself. Why bother going to church? Why bother giving up things? Why bother putting money in an offering bag for a cause that's really a lost cause if Christ has not been raised from the dead there is no resurrection of the dead and we Christians are pitiably deluded people we have placed our hopes in something which is not true another writer Leon Morris comments the believer is a martyr to an illusion anyone is better off than he so in summary the lady on the television program was right. There are huge implications. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is powerless, our faith is futile, and our prospects are pitiful. But Paul is in no doubt about the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has absolute certainty. He immediately goes on in verse 19, absolute certainty, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now you need to ask at this point, how is he so sure? How is it that he's under no doubt that Christ has been raised from the dead? Well, if you've still got the Bible open, that's where he starts this chapter. We've kind of gone forward and we're just going to go back a little while. Not, not for too long, stay with me. How can he be so sure of the fact? Because he's absolutely sure about the facts about the resurrection of Jesus, which is listed earlier in this chapter. He lists the evidence of eyewitnesses. Verse 5. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He says all these different people at different times witnessed, met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, bodily raised from the dead. And he says, as it were, he's writing maybe 20 years after the event. He's saying there's lots of folks. Some of, some of the folk have fallen asleep. Some of those who met him have died. But listen, 500 at one time. There's plenty of people you can go and check up with. Go and ask them. Did you really meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ? He says there's ample evidence. It wasn't some hallucinations, kind of a UFO thing that one person saw on one occasion. And, and that was it, you know, and you're not sure. It's a bit hazy. 500 people at one time. Wow. All these people encountered the risen Christ. And if that were not enough, Paul then adds, the clincher for him, he knew this before, but the evidence of personal experience. Verse 8, he says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. You see, the man who wrote this, Paul, was a pious, a zealous Jew. He was convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was an imposter, a heretic, who had been crucified outside the city of Jerusalem as a common criminal by the Roman authorities. And he determined all he could do to stamp out this terrible heresy of people who were claiming that Jesus was alive. What changed his mind? It was an astounding encounter one day at noon on the road to the city of Damascus in Syria. He was, up, he was going there to arrest more Christians and round them up, imprison them. Suddenly a bright light shines from heaven and a voice says, Saul, Saul, his old name, why are you persecuting, his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to fight the facts. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He realizes that the risen Jesus is alive. He is left in no doubt. And it transformed his life. It turned around completely about turning his life. He devoted his life from that point on to going and proclaiming this message that Jesus is risen from the dead. And he and his friends gave their lives, many of them. Became martyrs for Christ, witnessing to the point of death. Why? Because they were convinced the evidence is there that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, there are huge implications, therefore, because Christ has been raised from the dead. Just the opposite of what we looked at if he's not raised from the dead. Very simply, our gospel, the message, is powerful. Writing to the Christians in Rome, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel message. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so the message came to us. This message is powerful enough to save anyone and everyone. That's those who are baptized. Going to be baptized this morning have experienced that for themselves. Uh, there are countless people you can meet around you who will tell you the change that Jesus Christ has made in their lives. Their lives have been turned around, transformed. The gospel is powerful enough to save anyone and everyone if you're not a Christian this morning. This gospel message that we preach, that we live by, we're convinced that it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone. That God, the famous verse in the Bible, the best known, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Promise for you if you're not a Christian. Secondly then, our faith is firm. It's built on a firm foundation. That's where he starts, chapter 15 of, the, of this letter. He's writing to these Christians. He says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved 
if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. And then he says, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was dead, he's buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the heart of the Christian faith. There are churches all over Edinburgh, all over Scotland, that believe essentially that same thing. We may have outward differences and denominational differences, but at its heart we believe the same gospel, that Christ has died and that Christ is risen. And so our faith is built on a firm foundation. And if this is true, then finally our prospects are not pitiful, but rather our prospects are promising. Yes, it's the wrong word, but I couldn't think of anything else beginning with P. But <laughs> our prospects are astounding. Why? Because it means that we have hope in this life, certain future. Then no matter what happens to you, you have a future that extends beyond the grave. And that one day we shall fall asleep, unless Christ returns first. But we shall be raised to life. And this wonderful chapter, I encourage you, as I said, to go home and read it. He finished, he said, listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. This is the great hope of the Christian. The hope of every Christian funeral service, which we call Thanksgiving services for Christians. The hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We are not the most miserable people. We are the most joyful people because no matter what happens, it is under God's sovereign control. And ultimately, God will make all things new. And this is the greatest prospect ever. This is the hope of Easter of countless Christians throughout the world. Those who are being baptized today, declaring our identification with the risen Christ and putting our trust in him. And I simply ask you this morning, do you have this Easter hope? Do you have that certainty in your heart? Can you say, I know that Christ lives. He lives in my life by his spirit. Final word of conclusion. We began with this lost tomb of Jesus. And the question, have the bones of Jesus Christ been discovered in a tomb in Jerusalem? The answer is, of course, no. Two years on, it's interesting to look at this astounding story that was going to change the history of the world. It's been almost lot entirely discredited. And the tomb had, in fact, if you want to check the facts, had been discovered by archaeologists in 1980. And reputable scholars had discounted any thought that this might be the tomb of Jesus. The names Mary, Joseph and Jesus are commonplace names found in tombs all over Israel and other parts of the world. And all the DNA evidence shows is that the box with the person in whose name was Jesus and the one with the name was Mariamne were not physically related. And that's the evidence for marriage. If you look at the evidence, it doesn't stand up. The claims of the documentary makers, an incredible archaeological discovery in Israel changes history and shocks the world, is to say the least a wild exaggeration. No doubt other claims will come and other claims will go. But the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is compelling evidence. If you want to know more, we've been offering this booklet called Jesus Dead or Alive by John Blanchard. I'd encourage you to take a copy of the few copies left in the lounge. They're free. Just take one and read up the evidence. Study it for yourself. Look at the facts. Today at this Easter baptismal service, we affirm with assurance once more. Join me in the words if your conviction as well. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.
Let's celebrate that as we sing a great Easter hymn.